Matthew 17, verse 14, page 984, remembering this is God's Word. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then his disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us His Word today. Well, it might be helpful to you and to me if you had a Bible open at Matthew 17. Uh, That's passage that we read earlier, 14 to 20. Matthew 17, it's page 984 if you've got one of the Pew Bibles. I spent a couple of hours yesterday at the Reach Motor Festival over at the uh, old B&Q site, and a very enjoyable time there, lots of remarkable vehicles on show. Quite a lot of older men walking around pointing out things and saying, oh, I used to have one of those, and, uh, or I wanted one of those. That's what I uh, was saying a wee bit. And uh, cars of a few generations ago seemed uh, simpler, more fixable. They didn't need to be attached to a computer whenever a bulb went out. Modern cars are very smart, but sometimes very frustrating. Some of you, I know, have had that experience of your car going into what is called limp mode. Do you, do you know that, limp mode? Well, what happens is the, the computer detects that there's some problem, probably a very small problem, but um, the car restricts itself in terms of its power and ability so that only enough power is available for you to sort of limp to the next garage. So your 200-horsepower thoroughbred becomes something a bit more like a milk float and you sort of hobble along to the garage, and you get it fixed. Powerlessness, a lack of power. It seems to be a fairly common malady within the life of the church at times, and if we're honest, within the lives of Christian people at times. Rather than living lives that are wholehearted and characterized by trust and and victory, we just sort of limp along. We're not expecting very much, and we're not getting very much. And maybe we find ourselves in those situations, and, and we sort of justify ourselves, and we say, well, you know, this is the day of small things after all. The culture is particularly difficult. God is at work in other places, but maybe not so much here, or God is at work in other people, but not so much in me. And the Scriptures this morning, this passage this morning, I I think is a a timely word for us. It just fires a a warning shot across our bows, as it were, and it asks us about our faith. 
And it, it asks us where our, our trust is, where our faith is, and what our faith is like. And it highlights that we are in a spiritual battle. Spiritual demands are being made of us all the time. And we are called in that battle to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all too easy for us to just limp along and to lack the power that we really should draw upon. So let's pay attention here to what God's Word says to us, this vital word from Him, so that it does not pass us by. Some of you might know the name of Raphael, one of the great Renaissance painters of the 15th, 16th century. Many of his paintings are of biblical scenes. One of his most famous is of the Transfiguration, that incident that comes at the beginning of this chapter. And there, uh, Peter and James and John look on while uh, Jesus is transfigured. His glory shines out on the mountaintop. And Raphael paints this picture of this scene, and it's, it's very striking. You can maybe look it up sometime. The top of it is sort of bright and glowing. Jesus is there, and He's shining and so on. And at the bottom of the painting, it's dark and dreary and somber. And at the bottom of the painting, the, the, the Father has brought His Son to the disciples, and they obviously can't do anything for Him. And Raphael seems to have so much of this scene absolutely right, because these two passages sit side by side in every one of the occasions that they're told to us in the Synoptic Gospels and Matthew and Mark and Luke. And it's implying very much that, that these two things are happening at the same time. There, there's this mountaintop experience of glory, but at the same time, down in the valley, as it were, the disciples are in the situation where they're encountering evil, and they're helpless, and there's frustration, and it's all very, very difficult. And Jesus comes down from that mountaintop experience. He descends into the, the, the gloom and the evil, and of course, he is able to deal with it. We pick up the story in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Well, you can just hear the, the despair in his voice, can't you? And with a little bit of thought, you can imagine his pain. This was a, a land and a time of open fires and, and open cisterns, water cisterns. And, and this boy is, is, is finding himself in such dangerous situations time after time. It's a testimony to their care for him, presumably, that he has made it this far. His symptoms maybe appear to us like some form of epilepsies or seizures and so on, but the actual word that's used originally is, is the word moonstruck. Uh, it refers to that idea that people thought at the time that the, the phases of the moon had a particular uh, relationship with, with human behavior, especially abnormal behavior. Lots of people still have that sort of idea uh, today. It's because of that that the authorized version translates this lunatic, luna from the word for moon. But we'll see in a moment that, that Jesus has a different explanation. 
Now, here's a man who comes in, with great need, but with also with, with great faith. He has real faith in Jesus. He, he kneels before this man. He calls him uh, Lord. He, he asks for mercy. He, he knows that he doesn't really deserve a response, but you, you see that he's appealing to Christ's mercy. And you notice that, 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 that he's not put off by his experience with the disciples. That's really quite remarkable. Sometimes people are put off Jesus by his followers, but this man is not. He pushes through beyond the failures of Jesus' people to Jesus himself. And, and you know, if you're here today, and, and you're somebody who's, who's not yet a Christian, and, and you've been struggling with it a little bit, and you, you've you've been disappointed with Jesus' people. Maybe they're inconsistent. That's very regrettable, but I want to suggest to you that this man is a, is a model for you. He's a challenge for you. If, if he had walked away before he met Jesus, this would be a very, very sad story without a happy ending. And you should do, therefore, what he did, push past the, the indefensible failures of God's people and find Jesus Himself. We'll look at what happens next. Verse 17, Jesus says, "'O unbelieving and perverse genera generation,' Jesus replied, "'how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me.' Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Now, now this passage, I said earlier, this passage is a is a, like a warning shot across our bows, and it's particularly warning us of, of, about a couple of, of things, a couple of ways in which we, we go wrong whenever we think about, about faith. And one is that we've got to beware of the culture of, of unbelief, uh, beware of a sort of a faithless culture. We've got to be aware that we live in this faithless culture. And the, and the other is we've got to be aware of a faulty faith, of a misplaced and little faith. So, that's just our, our two sort of thrusts this morning. Beware of this faithless culture. You see, he, here is a story about a boy who is affected by a demon, and many of our friends, maybe some of us would want to explain this away or just flatly uh, not believe it, but Jesus is very, very clear that the root of this boy's problem is not a physical problem, it's a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem with, with familiar physical consequences, but it's a spiritual problem nonetheless. Now, we've got to say what the Bible says here. The Bible is clear that there is a spiritual world around us. It's a created world, but it's a hidden world to us. It's a world in which there are angels and demons. And the Bible tells us that there are occasions and points at which these spiritual beings interact with our world, and there are many, many questions that we might have about this, some of which the Bible will not answer for us. But we should also say that, that this proliferation of evil that we see at the time that Jesus was here on earth seems to have been specially concentrated around His arrival. So, for example, even as the, as the church is established, and, and as we get to those later New Testament writings, so, for example, Titus that we're looking at in the evenings, and Timothy, where, where in, in a way, the, sort of the expectations of the church for the age that we're living in are being shaped and, and set out. We, we get very little indication that the sorts of things that Jesus is experiencing here are to be regular occurrences that we're to come across. Timothy and Titus don't really set us in that direction. 
But, but nevertheless, what is absolutely clear here is that it is teaching us that it is possible for an evil spirit to come and live within a human being, uh, to inhabit a human being, uh, and to uh, inhabit a young boy at that. Now, that might seem odd for us, but let me say, every one of us who's a Christian here believes in spiritual indwelling. We believe that the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in a believer's life. And so, if we believe that the Holy Spirit can live within a person, then perhaps we should understand that it is not impossible for an evil spirit to come and to live within a person. So, Jesus not only diagnoses the boy's problems, He also expresses His disappointment and His frustration in these verses. He tells us to beware of this faithless culture. Some people have said that He's speaking about the disciples. Some people have said He's speaking about the religious leaders that the other gospel accounts tell us were there at the time. But it seems more that it is a general comment about the whole spiritual temperature of, of the culture, the world that he was in. It was a culture that was swift to disbelieve, especially disbelieve him, and that it was perverse in that it was twisted away from the way that it should be. It ought to be open to God and his Messiah, but it was swift to reject him. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we could probably say the same about today, couldn't we? The culture that we are in has a, a sort of a default position of unbelief, not only in Christ as the Messiah, but in God entirely. And it is twisted in that from the way that it should be. And you can see that the disciples, you see, were, were not immune from the culture in which they were in. They were sometimes quick to, to think and react in the way that they, in the soup, in the way of the soup that they were living in. We can be like that too. How does the world around us think? It tells us in a thousand ways, this world is all that there is. Everything that happens has a natural explanation. All that takes place can be explained by natural means. In the early 1800s, there was a French mathematician called Laplace, and he wrote a large work on the movements of the solar system, great mathematical models. He presented it to Napoleon, five volumes, and Napoleon read through it, glanced through it at least, and, and, and he said to Laplace, I see that there is no mention of God in your work. And famously, Laplace said, I have no need for that hypothesis. 1800s, our world has been saying that to us ever since. I have no need for that hypothesis. We live in a culture of disbelief. It tells us a story for the way things are around us. It lies behind just about every film that we watch and every television program that we watch and every uh, paper that we read and many of the conversations that we have in school or in work. And it is a story that has little room for God. And part of the reason that we need to, to allow God to speak into our lives for His Word to be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, is that we need Him to remind us of how things really are, to remind us that He is active within the world, but so is the evil one. We're reminded that, as John says, we know that we are children of God. This is in his first letter, First John. Um, he says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 
You'll not hear that in the news today. And so we allow God to speak to us, to remind us, to say to us, this is the way things really are. This is what's happening around you. See it as it really is. There is good and there is evil. Believe what I say to be true. So let's beware the culture of unbelief that we live in. Second thing, let's beware of the possibility, the very dangerous possibility of faulty faith. Because the situation that Jesus comes into as He comes down from the mountain is not a difficult one for Him. We wouldn't expect it to be after reading of Him being the Lord of glory. We, We can understand that no evil power is going to stand in His way. So, with a word, He rebukes the demon, and it is gone, and the boy is healed from that very moment. The healings that Jesus takes, does, are are instantaneous and complete. And there's no doubt that He has healed this boy. he's, He's entirely changed. Well, the disciples were, were obviously a little bit confused and a wee bit annoyed because back in, in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus had given them authority over evil spirits. This is what it says. He called His twelve disciples to Him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And so they come and they ask Him about it. Then the disciples came, verse 19, and came to Jesus in private and said, why couldn't we drive it out? They don't know what's gone wrong. They're worried about their powerlessness. They're, they're, they're in limp mode. They've found themselves in limp mode, and, and they want to know why. And Jesus leaves them in no doubt. Verse 20, He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the fault, Jesus says, is theirs. There's no problem with the authority that He has given them. It didn't run out. It wasn't time-limited. The problem is in their faith. Now, it's easy to read this wrong. It's easy to think that that, that faith is some sort of self-generated belief that you just have to sort of screw up within yourself and make sure that you have enough of it to get over the threshold. And then if you have enough of it, then God lacked. It's like a sort of a, a, a magic key, as it were. But it doesn't seem to be really talking about the amount of faith here, because in the next verse, Jesus speaks about faith as small as a mustard seed. And that implies that a very small amount of the right sort of faith is all that is needed. So the work of the kingdom depends upon the power of God and not upon the intensity of the faith of the workers. The work of the kingdom depends upon the power of God and not upon the intensity of the faith of the workers. It seems that the little faith that Jesus refers to is a faulty faith, a faith that forgot who He was. And so, it was a faith that wasn't really even in Him at all. It was really in themselves. So, maybe what was happening was, was something like this. They come to this man with the demon-possessed son, And they think to themselves, oh, yeah, demons, yeah, we've done this before. No problem. And they try to deal with it, but they can't because they're not dependent upon Jesus Christ. They're not looking to Him. Their their confidence is in the, the, the process rather than the Lord. Mark, in his account, brings this out by adding in something Jesus said to them. This kind can only come out by prayer. Some manuscripts of Matthew have that reference added in by way of explanation. It's verse 21 that's in the footnote. You see that verse 21 is not included 
in the main text of the, the Bible there. It's a, a later addition. But in other words, Jesus is saying, you know, you, you, you weren't praying. You, you weren't trusting me. You were trusting in the process and the fact that you'd done it before. You were really trusting in yourselves. And because they have this faulty faith, they find themselves in limp mode with only a little power, just enough to limp by. It's a big danger for us, isn't it? Let's be honest. Here's how this works for me. First time I have to do something out of the ordinary, I'm really anxious about it, and I pray, oh, Lord, this is new for me. I, I don't know how to do this. I've never been in this situation before. Will you help me, Lord? Will you give me the words to say? Will you, will you equip me? Will you help me to think well? Will you, will you help me to, to, to depend upon you and discern what's going on here and lean on you as I go through this? And by the 10th time, I think I can do it. And I don't pray like I should. Certainly don't pray like that. I don't feel my helplessness. And I'm tempted to trust in my experience rather than in the Lord. But if only we could see it, we are as entirely helpless on the 10th occasion as we were on the first occasion. And we need Jesus' power as much then as we did at the beginning. It's a very real danger for a church like ours, full church. What is our confidence in? Do we expect our church to progress and move forward in the days to come? Why do we expect that? Sometimes, if we're honest, our confidence is not so much in the Lord. We think we thrive because of our music or our youth ministry or our preaching or our welcome or our comfy seats or, or because a crowd gathers a crowd. But if that's what we're looking to, we will find ourselves entirely powerless in the battle. We will permanently be in limp mode because all the singing and preaching and welcoming and organization cannot open one blind eye. Not one. We need miracles day by day by day. We believe that, don't we? And this is here to help us to, to correct our course. It's saying, do you notice anything strange about your life as a follower of Jesus? Do you feel that you're limping along? Not much power over sin in your life? Not much power in your witness? Not much power in your prayers? Well, take action. Repent over your self-belief and trust Him again as you should. What will it mean if we, if we do that, if we live like that? Well, it will mean that we recognize that we're in a spiritual battle day by day. It will recognize that we have no resources of our own. It will mean that we look regularly, helplessly to God to do what we cannot do. In other words, it will mean that we pray. Even the, the, the kids' song made that connection, didn't it? Mark tells us Jesus said, this, cannot, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, friends, I, I know that there is a difference between a church that prays and a church that attends prayer meetings. I know that. But if 
the attendance at our prayer meetings in Hill Street is an indication of our recognition of our helplessness and our need to depend on God, then we're in trouble. On Wednesday, we will meet in fellowship groups. Will the dominant note of our prayer there communicate that we have no hope unless the Lord works? What is our hope for our family members who do not know Jesus? That they'll figure it out by themselves? What is our hope for some of the situations that we're going to go into this week that are so intractable and difficult, and we don't know how to, to navigate that we'll just find inspiration at the time? Here's what a little comment in, in a study Bible that I have said in this passage. When believers today seek to accomplish seemingly impossible tasks in the advancement of God's kingdom, God will come to their aid, enabling them to do more and greater things than they thought possible. This passage cautions believers to rely on God rather than themselves to accomplish the kingdom goals, but it also encourages them not to be timid in their expectation of what God can do. After all, God has done the hardest things. He has atoned for the sins of His people in Jesus Christ. You see, here's, you know, this is in Matthew's gospel. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. This is the gift of God, Jesus given to be a redeemer of His people, to be a sacrifice for sin, the greatest thing that God could give us. Do you think He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could live in limp mode? So that we could trust in ourselves. So, friends, let's be serious about confessing our sin, about trusting in Him and not ourselves, and about humbly calling on Him to be at work in every area of our life together. Let's pray. Lord, perhaps we, we want to confess this morning that there are things that we've not really been looking to You for. There are things in our lives that we just hope will work out. There are situations that we're resting in our own experience or skills. There are things that we know that we've, we've done before, and so we just think it'll happen again. And yet we remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who says, without me, you can do nothing. So, Lord, we confess our self-reliance, our prayerlessness, our pride, and we look afresh to you. 
We don't want to be those people who limp along. We don't want to be a church that limps along. We, we want to see the spiritual power unleashed within our lives, within the lives of our family and friends, within the situations into which we walk into this week. We, we, we want to come here next week and look back and say, God was at work. You did things that we could never have done. Lord, raise our expectations, we pray. Help us to look to you. And we humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen.